Mindset is one of those things that we tend to ask most of our guests about, mostly because it's crucial for overcoming setbacks and growing our copywriting businesses. Our guest for the 208th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is copywriter Ian Stanley. We focus most of our discussion on mindset and his personal journey for improvement, and we even learned why Ian has Feed the Wolf tattooed on his arm. Before we learn about Ian's tattoo, we want to mention that this week's sponsor is the Copywriter Underground. It's a private membership and community designed to help you hit your business growth goals faster. No matter what your business goal is, say 10K a month or launching a new product or finding a new client or just smoothing out the feast and famine cycle that we all go through at times, the resources in the Underground will help you do it all. Find out more at thecopywriterunderground.com. If you've heard Ian speak before, stick around. He shared a few things he's never talked about publicly before. There's a lot of good stuff in this interview about mastery, acceptance, and responsibility. Let's jump into our discussion and find out how Ian became a copywriter. Ian, let's kick this off with your story. How did you end up as a copywriter for people who do not know you? Yeah, I guess sort of the story I tend to tell is obviously the true story. And I guess it it mainly started my sophomore year of college. I was transferring from SMU to Santa Cruz, where I was was playing tennis and my scholarship shit, I basically decided to to switch schools. And so I had this quarter in between because I decided super late where I was, um, I had like two classes a week at this community college to basically, you know, get credits. And the rest of the time, I was living in this mobile home in Aptos, California, which is right next to Santa Cruz. And, you know, we had, I only had tennis practice a few times a week. And so I basically spent all my time in this uh, weird little mobile home on my computer, just clicking on stuff on the Internet. And this is, you know, this is 2009, I suppose. So it's, you know, pre Instagram and all these, you know, as much social media and stuff. So I basically was clicking around and I ended up, I would click on ads about how to make money online. And I always remember the first thing, one of the first things I ever found, it was like, oh, you go to this place called ClickBank and you promote these products, you buy an ad and then people click on it. And it had this thing, it says 50% commission. Right. And I, and I remember telling my mom, I go, oh, I'm going to be so rich. Like, it's 50% of the people who click on these ads buy the product. So yeah, like that's so literally if I send 20 people tomorrow, 10 of them are going to buy and I'm going to make $500. And I just remember the, one of the products I, one of the products I'm going to promote was how to grow taller. Uh, and it was, it was like this product about how to grow taller. And I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm six, one and a half or so my dad's six, four, and he's basically height shamed me my entire life. So I was like, Oh, people definitely want to buy this. You know, my, my dad's a a height supremacist. So I'm like, Oh, this is, you know, I'm going to crush it with this thing. And it turns out that, you know, conversion rates are anywhere from one to maybe 5%. And that 50% was the amount of money they pay you from every sale, uh, which was a bit of a letdown. And so essentially what happened at that time was I was just clicking on ads. And I remember literally buying, you know, or seeing ads about writing stuff in your underwear I ended up getting into an MLM without really knowing it. I got into Herbalife and that first thing they tell you, right, is, you know, I want to be really clear, like you do not have to sell to your friends and family. First thing when you get in the program, 
now let's talk to your friends and family. And <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I hate this. And then I look at the products and they're full of soy and garbage. And I was like, herbal life is terrible. Definitely don't recommend getting involved. And I basically just bought stuff, refunded stuff, tried some stuff, didn't really. And um, the next year I, I got some uh, courses about uh, email marketing. It was actually, I got Andre Chaperon's course. And then I bought Peter Spapin's course from his. And that's when I kind of considered that my marketing education really started. And I kind of liked, I liked this email writing side of things. So I ended up, I wrote this book about how to pick up women, um, not physically pick them up, but how to, you know, go to bars and meet women, whatever it was. Cause I was, you know, I had just turned 20 and every 20 year old knows everything in the world. So I wrote this book in a few days and then I was trying to sell it and, uh, and I didn't really make any money. Um, but over that summer, basically between my junior and senior year of college, I'd gone to Brazil to go play tennis for a month. And while I was there, these two guys had paid me to write emails for them. And I think I wrote 150 emails for each one of them. And I got paid $500 by one and 600 by the other. Uh, and so so five, $5 an email is what you're $5 charging, is that right? $5 an email is wow. what I was charging when I started. Yeah, and I learned the because I was creating these like 15 email sequences for them to resell to other people. And they literally made that back in two sales. They were selling them for like $300 each. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they I charged them very little, obviously. But I learned how to create templates pretty much right away because – had to right it was out of necessity you can't write 300 emails over the course of a few weeks really no matter how good you are unless you've created some sort of system and templates for that and so um that kind of you know that was that was my first time ever actually making some getting just like paid for that and uh and so my senior year i had a friend who he bought some bing ads to a little story i wrote about you know an experience with a girl and violence not in the same story, the violence and the woman were not uh, in the same story. It was what I had learned from this prison guard and how it related to meeting women. And uh, oddly enough, it worked. People were clicking to go through to this product, the Dow Badass. And uh, I remember I made my first sale that year, and I just I ran through my apartment like a psychopath, just so excited because it's like the first sale you make online. It has all of the excitement of future riches with none of the past like tainted view of what you've already done to compare it to. Like I remember the first time we did a $10,000 day in my fixed water business, I was like, well, yeah, but I've done more. And you're like, what? No, you haven't in this business. Like you have in other people's businesses. So like it's, you want to make sure you're celebrating the good things that happen and not shitting on yourself basically. Um, and so that was kind of, that was a really big moment for me. And then I remember during one of my finals, uh, I came out of my class and I had, you know, looked at the ClickBank thing and it said I had $113.84. And my account was like, oh my God, I just got paid to take a test. All these losers are in here trying to get jobs and I'm going to be, you know, just making bank right away. And then, of course, that wasn't the case. <laughs> um, and so basically, right after college, I, I was, um, I ended up getting a job selling direct TV at, uh, within like Best Buy and like Sam's club and stuff. And I was, uh, making sort of okay money. Like I, I became the top salesman in like two weeks, but I was working literally, you know, and this may be way too long a version of the story. I'm just about at the end, but basically, um, I was working eight hours a day 
Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I was working 10 hours a day, Saturday, Sunday, and I was on my feet the whole time, and we had Wednesdays off, which is not a great day to have off if all of your friends have normal jobs, um, and it was just like, this is this is crazy, and so I was also teaching tennis, and I made 70 bucks to 100 bucks an hour teaching tennis at 22. I'm like, all right, let's do this, and I'll build my business on the side, and as I was trying to do that, I really wasn't. It wasn't working, and I was basically trying to do everything, right? And this is what everybody in the forums is doing, too. They build the website. They write the copy. They create the the product. They manage the customer service. They do all this, and most all of them were broke. And I was like, this doesn't seem to make sense. So I basically um, I ended up getting Derek Johansson's copy hour, which is, you know, he's one of, become one of my really close friends now, and we've made a bunch of money together and he's just one of the best people, but his, uh, his product, I basically just would hand copy a sales letter for an hour every day. And that was sort of the commitment and the, the changing point where it was like, this is what I'm going to do is get really good at one thing. And I chose copy and I did that. And then I got a job working with, uh, uh, for this business in the personal finance space it was basically the owner, one other guy and me, and we were doing a, a few million dollars a year. And I was writing all the emails for this 1.2 million person email list. And I just basically dissected everything that worked and didn't work and became sort of a nerd of email. And then from there, ended up writing a lot of you know video sales letters, doing crazy videos, drinking out of toilets uh, with a water filter, and then have continued to sort of use that skill within any of the businesses that I've been a part of. So you mentioned a couple of courses that you invested in and took. Before we talk about you know, how you grew your business and the specifics of what you've done, can I just ask, what did you learn from the courses that, that you took and why those courses when you decided to start investing in those, uh, that kind of learning? Yeah. Yeah. So Derek's course, Copy Hour, was just, um, I had, you know, people had, had, you hear it when you get into the world of copywriting, oh, you should hand copy these sales letters and nobody actually does it. And he had a product that gave you the letters to copy and stuff. And I was just like, I'm just going to do this. I just, this is what I want and I'm going to do it. And I just made that commitment. And that was my only measure of success for each given day. It was not outcome based. And I lived my whole life in the the fixed mindset. Basically, if you know the difference between a fixed and a growth mindset, um, I, my dad raised me on the talent model. I was very talented at tennis and, and at sports physically. I was mentally essentially like just a complete and utter mess because my entire identity, I was supposed to win Wimbledon from age three. And so therefore that creates the impossibility of you doing that because the amount of pressure is so high. So I was throwing rackets over fences and, you know, punching walls and punching myself in the head and such things um, that, you know, normal people have probably done. (laughs) And, uh, and I basically just said, I'm just going to practice and just try and just get really good at this without any attachment to the outcome. And so Derek's course was a really good way to guide me along. Um, and then Andre's course was was great. The autoresponder madness, it was really good. Um, and then, you know, I ended up creating my own email course. Uh, my only thing with Andre's is it's very sexy, super sexy. And people, oh my God, open loops and Hollywood stories and all this. But it's it's very hard for most people to, to implement. Um, but it was a, what it really offered me was a shift in strategy. Like everything else that I bought was everybody's tactics, right? One weird loophole to make you $2,622 and 16 cents tomorrow, you know, weird traffic loophole opened up and it's all tactics. And his stuff was very much strategy based and same with Peter Spapen's course. It was, 
it was thinking on a deeper level about humans and customers. And so that was what really shifted stuff was um, thinking about marketing from that perspective. Okay. Talking about loopholes, I'm still stuck on your first offer about how to grow taller. How, how do we, what is the secret ingredient to growing taller? You need Rob, this do not think, do not, no comment. But I'm curious, I mean, what was that, like, what was the secret ingredient in that offer? I actually, I think it's, I think it's legit. The, um, I did some of the exercises for a bit. It was, it was quite a bit of work. It was like 30 minutes a day of these, these exercises, like 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night. And of course it was this, you know, little tiny Asian guy who was the face of it. And, uh, you know, he wasn't quite as small anymore. And, um, it's basically, if I remember correctly, the cartilage between our spine, uh, not between in between each of the, um, pieces of our spine basically can be thickened and grown and a lot of it's basically compressed. And so it was essentially creating space in between the, um, the parts of your, the different parts of your spine, um, and in order to actually increase your height and then there was this was a fascinating one was that you can increase um the it was basically cartilage right it was increasing the amount of cartilage in between bones so there was an they had i always remember and this is how you know if a sales that is great or not is like if like truly great do you remember the stories do you remember certain parts of it was there something unique enough and weird enough that you'll never forget that one and the fact that i remember this i didn't even know it was called a sales page at the time right and i haven't seen this in literally probably 10 years, but there was this like diagram of um, people who ride bikes and they're leaning forward. And then, and that was basically in one country, that's how they ride their bikes. And then in like Amsterdam, they ride bikes sitting straight up and your legs are lower and they're stretched. Essentially the way that your, um, when you're cycling and I'm, I'm making motions with my hands, which I realize I'm not on video, so that doesn't help. But as your feet are cycling, they were basically expanding the cartilage as you were coming down because of the position on the bike. And they were like, oh, Dutch people are the tallest in the world. And of course, you can always draw any sort of causation or, or sorry, correlation rather than causation. But it was an interesting sort of idea is you can actually lengthen the cartilage or increase the cartilage in your knees to grow taller through riding a bike and you consistently basically increase the height of your seat so that your feet are having to go a little bit further every time. Okay, so we're close to 15 minutes in and we've already covered a lot of things worth digging a little deeper into here. Rob, what stood out to you? So there's really two things that uh, I think that I would comment on. First, Ian mentions ClickBank and, you know, that's a, a great place where he got started and it kind of triggered this idea in my head that we've shared a few times in the Copywriter Club Facebook group. And that is, you know, when, when uh, copywriters have come to us and said, how do I get started? How do I get a first project? How can I get a first sales page written? One of the things that we've suggested that some copywriters could do is go into ClickBank and find a product that resonates with them, something that they can uh, believe in or something they can write about 
and then take a look at the things that are being done there. Usually there are sample uh, sales pages, sometimes done by very good copywriters, others maybe uh, done by product owners that need help with copywriting, but choose something there and actually write a sales page for the product that's on that page. And then if you wanna take it to the next level and say, hey, I can even show that my copy performs well, what you can do is um, sign up as an affiliate for that product and start running Facebook ads to your sales page. And if you are able to get conversions on that sales page, you actually earn an affiliate commission and can talk about your, you know, your conversion rates or your ability to drive tra traffic, those kinds of things. So it's a tool that I think we can all use. It's not exactly what Ian was suggesting, but it just kind of triggered that idea. And I thought I'd mention it. If you're looking for a way to get your first sales page, it's uh, it's a place to go and maybe find an idea to inspire you and, and to get started. But the real thing that, that stood out um, is what Ian is saying about hand copying and this process. You and I have been asked about this before in some of our groups. In fact, a few weeks ago, we were asked about this in the accelerator uh, by somebody who just said, you know, do we hand copy sales pages or copy that we like? And we had a nice little discussion there uh, I think it's a great idea and I've heard a lot of people talk about it, but the problem for me is it makes my hand hurt. Every time I sit down and copy this page, my hand hurts. And so, uh, it's not something that I like to do personally. Um, maybe I take a little bit of a different approach, but what about you? Do you ever hand copy a sales page? I get hand cramps too. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we should just suck up the pain. No, it's not something I have done. It's something that's kind of been in the back of my mind because it comes up so frequently and because a lot of top copywriters like Ian talk about it. And so I think it is important to, to listen to what successful copywriters are practicing and what has led to their mastery and test it for yourself. But, um, as of today, it's not something that is part of my regular ritual or practice, but it's not something that I would shrug off either. Uh, it's definitely something I'd like to just test for myself and suck up any of the hand cramps. I personally just hate my handwriting. Um, I don't have great handwriting. Writing it with pen isn't physically painful, but it just feels very uncomfortable to me. It's really hard for me to write for long periods of time. So maybe, Rob, we're just like, maybe we're just wimpy. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's what it is. But I, I seem to remember that we talked about this with Joe Schrieffer at one point, and he suggested that rather than just copy, hand copy sales letters, there's actually a better approach. And that is to think about what's going on in the sales page or in the copy that you want to emulate. So yeah, you could hand copy it and, and that creates the connection between your fingers and your brain. You know, I've heard those kinds of arguments, but I think it's more important to, to, um, Think about, you know, why is this headline catching my attention? What is it about this lead that is creating curiosity? You know, what am I, uh, what emotions am I feeling when I read this uh, kind of a lead? What kind of a lead is it? You know, are, are we talking about an invitation or is it a story lead or is it a news lead? You know, any of those that, that we've talked about in the past with different guests, but basically taking that copy and if you want to hand copy, this should be going on as you're doing that. But the, the important part is really thinking through why is this copy successful? Why is it effective? And how would I change it to make it better? Maybe we should challenge ourselves to hand copy for one month and hand copy, you know, three different long form sales pages and see, see how it goes. Would you be up for that or are you out? I'm not out. I won't. I won't say okay. no to anything. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's maybe a challenge that we can take on and report back on. Okay. 
All right, I'll make a note. And let's go back to our interview with Ian and talk about how important mindset is for his success. You mentioned fixed mindset versus you know growth mindset and how your mindset has changed. You hinted at that. I'd love to hear more about how your mindset has changed in business and life over the last maybe three years. What have you done to change your mindset that other copywriters could pursue as well? Yeah. Do you guys have like six hours or so? <laughs> we, we can probably so, go uh, five and a half. Okay, five and a half. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, it's that last half hour that's really going to give you the, the meat. Um, yeah. So the, I mean, the most profound things I've done have been uh, and if you're talking just the last three years, I'll say sort of quickly back to, you know, eight years ago, whatever, when I was decided to take copywriting seriously, the difference was I had read these books about the talent code and the difference between the people who become great and not great. It's not the talent. It's not the physical capacity. Like I'm in the highest percentage of, of physical capacity. And I don't say that out of arrogance at all. It's like it, just from a physical ability like my mom and dad is still number one in the world for their age in tennis like genetically i'm about as gifted as i could be at you know a couple of sports and that didn't matter at all if your mind is completely which mine was uh you i mean you can literally any anybody there are people who i haven't seen since i was 13 years old and the first thing they've seen oh my god dude i remember watching you throw a racket over a fence into a parking lot at thousand oak high school <laughs> and then try to fight seven guys on the team at once wow and i was like yeah that was that was me i was the only person other than my other buddy dom who were like getting in physical altercations on it in tennis right like how bizarre um, is that. And so, and then off the court, I was always extremely relaxed and very easygoing and, and happy, go lucky, you know, whatever, but, um, everything was attached to outcome, right? So how I hit the, the process didn't matter. And I, and I had coaches who would say process is all that matters. Focus on the strokes to play, you know, doing the, making the right choice is not about the outcome, but when you're ingrained from childhood, that your talent is what matters and that the outcome is all that matters. You can't just tell somebody to change and they change. Um, if that worked, we wouldn't have therapists and we wouldn't have all the people that we have, you know, creating change on a deeper level. So, um, the biggest thing was writing was the only thing that I ever approached from a place of practice, true practice. If nobody, if I wrote absolute garbage, it didn't matter if I wrote shit that day or I wrote great that day, all that mattered was that I put words down. And that was a huge shift for me. Um, and that's why I think I got good at writing quickly was because I didn't care about the quality. Um, and I can, if, you know, if we talk about the comedy stuff, I can tell you my sort of little Seinfeld thing there. But, um, the, the biggest things that I did is I, I worked with a therapist named Brent Charlton, who I then ended up starting a business with called Lionheart, which we stopped actually right around a year ago. Um, he just, he charges now 75 grand a year for, for one-on-one -on -one coaching and, he was basically stretched too thin to do both the businesses. We actually, we grew that business to six figures a month uh, pretty quickly. And we're really helping people in a very deep way. And a lot of uh, the top copywriters actually have been through that. Uh, come to our workshops and, and their copy got a lot better by, by tapping into their emotions and learning how to um, access more of that. But he really shifted things for me in a very profound way. Um, 
And then the second thing that was absolutely instrumental in my life is the book called The Surrender Experiment. Um, and I've read it like 10 or 11 times now over the past two, couple of years. And it's basically become the foundation of every minute of my life, like not every hour, not every day, but literally every minute um, with the goal of just letting go and, and surrendering and allowing the world to unfold uh, as it wants to and not as I want it to. Uh, that's been that combined with the stuff I, you know, I had learned from Brent has been massive. And then my experience with ayahuasca. So I'd say those are the three things. Um, and if it weren't for surrender, I would not have had the experience I had with ayahuasca because I spent um, my whole life staying away from, from any sort of drugs and any sort of hallucinogens and things like that out of a lot of fear and wanting to control things. And so by essentially being able to surrender in that experience with the ayahuasca and let it take me uh, where it wanted to take me and not where I wanted it to take me, I was able to have a much deeper experience than than a lot of people tend to have simply because they resist um, what's coming up. And so, you know, that's really the biggest thing for me is just the full understanding that every single moment is happening and you have two choices in every moment. One is to resist it and one is to surrender and accept that it's happening. And one of them is painful and not a very good way to live. And that's the one that pretty much everybody chooses, which is resistance. And the other way is very difficult at times, but a much more uh, rewarding path, in my opinion. So I definitely want to ask uh, more details maybe about uh, Lionheart and ayahuasca. But uh, really, my question is, how do you practice this in your daily life every day now what does that look like when you you know get up in the morning or when you sit down to write uh the the mindset things the one thing i would recommend every human consumes if you work or have a business or anything is uh there's there's an audio book um it's basically an audio recording it's like an hour and a half maybe two hours of, of michael singer who wrote the surrender experiment he also wrote a book called the untethered soul it's called the untethered soul at work it's a really good sort of practical application of, of surrender in, in everyday work life. And essentially the goal of, of working, the goal, people separate their spirituality from their business, right? Well, I'm a business guy over here and I'm spiritual over here. I'm, you know, I work out over here and then I'm spiritual over here. And it's like, no, they're all one thing. And the, basically the way within work is as things come up and I have these, pre like we all have preferences every minute. Right, I'd prefer things were this way or that way, or the ridiculous ones that I've never understood. I, I wish it wasn't raining. Well, it is. So you can accept it or you can continue to create your own pain. Well, I wish this wasn't happening or, oh, I'm so afraid about the future and there's all this fear and stress and stuff happening. And so for me, it's just in every moment, whether it's unfolding how I want it to or not, which is the reality of life is it's not going to unfold how you want it to. That's just how shit goes. The world's been around for billions of years. The idea that it's going to change based on your desires is very unlikely. Um, so allowing things to unfold tends to end up actually leading to much better places that you couldn't have imagined for yourself. Um, but so on a daily basis, it comes down to essentially the two the two biggest things that I, I'd say actually it's the three biggest things that I work on is how can I let go of myself? And the concepts of my identity and Ian Stanley and who I think I am and, you know, all of things going the way that I want them to go. Uh, the second is how much can I build my tolerance for good things and good feelings to happen in my life? So there's another great book called The Big Leap. It doesn't have many solutions, unfortunately, but it's got a great way to make you aware of how up you are. 
Um, and it basically talks about the upper limit problem, which is that as we get close to getting whatever we want, we find a way to screw it up, which I'd had that experience pretty much my whole life. Um, whether it's getting injured or, you know, stop practicing right when you've got a big tournament or it's, you know, in a relationship, finding a way to mess it up right when it's getting really serious um, or in business, oh, making a bunch of money, let's go find a relationship issue or let's mess something up, whatever it is. Um, so the second piece is learning how to build up a tolerance for good feelings because we tend to have a limit on how much we allow ourselves to feel good. Um, and then the third thing is the, the concept sort of the question that I ask myself is which wolf am I feeding? And so I imagine very vividly that I have these two wolves. Um, one is the good wolf and one is the bad wolf and I get to choose in every moment, which one I feed. And so I have that same, I have it tattooed on my forearm, feed the wolf. I have the domain name, feed the wolf. It's a constant reminder. I have a statue of Odin, which that's a much crazier story from ayahuasca, but with his two wolves, um, at his feet sitting on my desk. So it's a, a reminder that I get to choose which wolf I feed and, and I get to deal with the consequences like I'm responsible for my life and that's what so many people these days it's a, the biggest victim culture we've ever lived in um, and everybody thinks that they're a victim and it's like you're not responsible for what happened to you in the past but you are responsible for now and the future and so it's like you got to take responsibility for your shit and stop blaming other people I want to talk about ayahuasca I love a good ayahuasca story so can you tell us a little bit about your experience, whatever you're open to sharing, and then just some, some lessons that you took away from it that we could apply in our businesses as well? Yeah, I'll, I'll warn you, it literally took, I think it's five and a half hours to tell my girlfriend all the stories uh, of what <laughs> happened. And I wanted to write a book on it, and I have, I've written some of, of what happened. I can give you kind of the cliff notes of, of the biggest takeaways that I had from it. Um, let's see, where to start? The first one was very profound for me, and all these these were all very profound, so it's kind of redundant to say that. But um, one of the big things was uh, my sort of intention going in. You, you set an intention when you go to do it, and I, you know, this was over three days. We did three ceremonies, and we're in the mountains in in Santa Cruz, and this is you know a few years ago. And basically, um, the intention has to be in a in a set in the positive. So it's not like I want to get rid of this thing. And so I was like, I want to stop needing other people's validation, right? And so instead it became, I want to be able to self-validate. And I've been able to do that for most of my life in most areas, but especially women were basically my validation mechanism or winning at sports or, or you know, money became one. But women was, that was a very big one for me is, you know, being able to go out and meet women and basically, you know, hook up with whatever girl i decided to on any given night was like the greatest validate, you know, the validation mechanism. If a girl liked me, then of course I could, I could love myself. Or if I won this match, then I can love myself. Or if uh, I made this money, then I can love myself. And the thing is for most of my life, I created the conditions to love myself. Um, but it was conditional. And so I had this really big moment where essentially the, this big, basically woman's eye was in the ceiling of the place we were in. And it just, like look through and it just said love yourself for no reason and that was so the big first piece was that so much of everything that i gave myself in the realm of loving myself was based on conditional reasons 
And that's what most people, I love myself. Why? Because, well, a lot of people don't even ever say that, but well, why? Because I'm good at this. Well, why? Because other people like me. Well, why? Because I'm, you know, smart. I'm intelligent. I'm, you know, good at sports. I'm women like me. And it's like, well, that means that if your life doesn't happen to match up with those conditions, then you're not going to experience happiness. And so it's creating a condition. And so it was just to learn how to, you know, it's the same. I feel the same way about happiness. What's the best reason to be happy? No reason at all. That's the best reason is not to need reasons. And so that that definitely played a huge role. And it changed my relationship with my girlfriend a lot from being able to sort of self-validate as opposed to having any sort of neediness, which is very different from all my other relationships. It was, I was rarely ever a needy person, but with her, that tended to be the case. Um, and then I'll say the biggest thing for me was, um, and I don't, I guess I'll just, I don't, I don't care. I'll just say what I experienced. Basically on the second night, um, I experienced my complete death, uh, 100%. I did not think I was coming back at all. Didn't think I was ever coming back. Uh, I got to basically merge with what I would call the void. And it was just basically pure, endless white light and the most incredible bliss that you can't even imagine because it's beyond our conscious ability to imagine it. And it was so overwhelming. And I was it was like probably an hour, an hour and a half. And at the time, you're not even really, you know, it's not like I, was con I wasn't I was consciously aware of time. It was only later that I was able to kind of see maybe how long that was. But um, I basically experienced that complete release. Got to hang out with, you know, experience what it was like to die and know what it was like. And it was remarkable. Um, and then I had to come back to Earth. And that was the most painful thing to this day I've ever experienced, despite all the physical things that I've had, it was the most painful experience to basically come back to being human. And I was mad and angry and I wanted to kill myself for real. And I was just like, this is all within that, that night because I just couldn't imagine why I would have to come back to the pain of being human when I had just gotten to experience death and how much better it was. And so um, but in that, I also basically I got to see how the world was created, which this sounds so bizarre. And I, I don't expect anyone to share my beliefs. I'm not even saying that they're true or that I necessarily think this. But I basically saw which gods were the real gods, which gods weren't. I saw that the I think I've only ever talked about this publicly once. Um, but I guess since you're asking, I'll just say it. But I, I saw that the Norse gods were the ones who created the world and that uh and that which I didn't even really know anything about the Norse gods, which was part of, part of why it was so bizarre. But the biggest thing that um, that I got to experience from that was that the whole point of being human is that we get to make mistakes. And the gods envy us because they're perfect and they're not able to make mistakes. And that's why from time to time they send some of them down here to come and be a part of the world and uh, and, you know, be human for a bit to experience what it's like to be able to have the gift of being imperfect and making mistakes. And so I think that's been one of the most useful and enlightening things of my life is that not only a mistake, something to not beat yourself up about, but there's something to be celebrated as 
the core of our human experience. And so, especially in business, it's been so beneficial because everybody's so afraid of f***ing up and I just make mistakes all the time and I don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at within any religion, look at, you know, Christianity, how was the world created? What happened to Adam and Eve? What was the first thing that God did? He put the apple tree there. And if Eve wasn't supposed to eat it, then she wouldn't have. He's like, hey, go sin, please. You do not want to know what it's like to have to be perfect all the time. Go make a mistake. That's the gift of being human. And so for me, it's walking through life with this understanding, one, of knowing what it's like to die and that it's going to be absolutely fine when I do and accepting my death. It's actually going to be better. Um, but that I have plenty to do before then. And then the second piece is that my mistakes are sort of the foundation of what makes me a person. So before we leave the mindset stuff, we also want to ask about Lionheart and what you put together there. How did that differ uh, from the other experiences that you've had? And what did you uh, help people do or accomplish uh, when they joined Lionheart? Lionheart was basically the, the easiest way to explain it was we help people um, uncover and resolve the deeper mental and emotional blocks that were holding them back. Um, so it's basically through the, the framework of the child, the teen, and the functional adult and those ego states and then the four core issues. And uh, we would teach people basically how to build up the awareness around those ego states and then learn how to do these things called corrections, which is Brent's work on how to actually remove those blocks. And so um, when the business stopped, we, you know, he basically had the IP for the products and him and I are still friends. And we, we actually might try and bring back his product, like the, that core teaching, so that I can still give it to my audience because I want it help people so much. I want to, I want to have it not to make money, but to like, I mean, sure. It's great, you know, to make money from it, but to like give people that opportunity because it, it did change my life so much. Um, but essentially it was a way to kind of reparent yourself and, and go back and, and correct things that, you know, so much of what we, the person that we think we are is really just a combination of all the stuff that our parents and teachers and society and culture and stuff told us as we were growing up and we're a reflection of all those things. So um, it's a way to, to actually, I'd call it very practical psychology of not just, Oh, let's talk about your trauma. Okay. Now let's, uh, let's identify with your trauma and then, Oh, well I have anxiety. Oh, do you feel, you know, you tell someone you have anxiety and then you go, do you feel less anxious now? They're like, no, I feel anxious. Uh, it's like people identify so heavily with their trauma. And so it's sort of a way to be able to go and, and, uh, re, uh, parent that trauma in order to, to produce the triggering and, and get out of your own way. That's a huge part of it is so much of our issues that we're always the one getting in our own way. And so it's a way to kind of get yourself out of the way. Nice. So Ian, We've talked a lot about mindset here, and I know you don't necessarily sell yourself as the mindset guy. I mean, you're definitely a copywriter. Tell us about your copywriting business, the kinds of clients that you work for, uh, you know, the kinds of projects that you work on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really call myself a copywriter anymore early on. That was it at this point. You know, I've had a few different businesses and I've, I've written copy within each one. And, you know, I have my book is, you know, Confessions of a Persuasion Hitman. I sort of renamed the something a little more broad that encompassed more of all the different things I did and do. Um, but in the freelancing world, I've done a lot of uh, VSLs and, and some email copy and stuff for people where basically I charge 25 grand up front and I'll rewrite 
part of an existing sales letter. And then I have a bonus structure on the back end of that. That's basically um, anywhere from $1,000 per percent increase to I have some other structures and stuff. So if I beat a control by, you know, 40%, I make 40 grand. Um, and sort of I've always focused on creating win-win situations where it, sort of at the core of everything I teach around money is uh, that you want to disconnect time and money. Um, I would just launch this new thing called the exponential income roadmap. And the whole basis of exponential income is it's income that does not require you to be present in order to be earning money. And that was the core issue with coaching tennis was, yeah, I'm making 70 bucks an hour at 22, but I have to be on the court to make money. And so, and I see a lot of copywriters and stuff too, while they even, you know, on a good, on the good end, they charge for a, a project, but there's no upside. There's no incentive. Uh, there's no way to scale up their income without having to scale up the amount of work they put in. Uh, and so that was always a focus. And I basically took that money and used that to build different businesses. And then now my primary business is, um, is essentially teaching people how to make more money in less time while having more fun. So whether it's through copy or writing emails for other people or creating your own business with an email list and, and mailing it daily. Uh, that's primarily what I do now is, is have that one business where I help people with that. And then I have, um, we've renamed, we're renaming this company almost passive income. Uh, and the sort of core concept of a lot of the way I see things is how do you create almost passive income sources, right? So, sources of income that require you to only work, whether it's 10 minutes a day, a week, or, you know, 10 hours a week or whatever it might be, um, in order to create income. And so I have, you know, a couple side projects I still do where it's basically, again, how do I leverage a little bit of work once to get paid a lot disproportionately? I love that idea too, of, uh, leveraging a little bit of work because, you know, we hear people selling passive income all the time. And the fact of the matter is it's, it's never passive. There's always something, but to set the expectation of what that could look like feels really good. Yeah. Truly passive income only really ex exists for the hyper wealthy. So once you're at a certain level of wealth, people will basically pay you to be rich. They're like, Hey, you're rich. Can I pay you to be rich? I'll just take your money and turn it into more money. But the reality is up to that point, you want to create these almost passive income sources, things that don't take you, you know, hours and hours every day, but that can grow exponentially so it's you know any sort of exponential outcome is essentially taking a small fixed input and having a disproportionate outcome so can you put in you know that's why like I've this, the one hour work day the whole program is based on the simple concept that if you have a list of a thousand people and it makes you a thousand dollars a month if next month that list is ten thousand people it still takes you the same 20 minutes to write an email to that list each day except now you're making ten thousand a month now, if next month that list is 20,000 people, it still takes you the same 20 minutes a day, except now your income has gone up to 20,000 a month. And so you're exponentially growing your income without having to increase your input of work. And that's where so many people make mistakes is they just increase their input in order to increase their output. And it's not scalable because it's all based on time and time cannot be, you can't expand the constraints of 24 hours in a day. Yeah, we've all got the same 168 hours a week, right? So, um, 
So aside from, you know, some of the mindset things that we've talked about and maybe, you know, this, uh, you know, not having some kind of a scalable income stream, where do you see copywriters messing up in their businesses? You know, where do they mess up the most when they're growing their business? You know, what's the craziest shit is people don't meet their deadlines. I didn't even know this was the thing when I started out, like, and this is why I don't even, when you call yourself a copywriter, you're lumped in with all the copywriters, what they charge, the mistakes they've made, all the things they've done. And so I'm like, as a persuasion hitman, well, what are you, what are you lumped in as? Well, there's no comparison, so I can charge whatever I want. And I also don't have all of the stigma of all these copywriters in the past who haven't met their deadlines. That's the most bizarre thing I see people do at times. They just don't hit a deadline. And it's like, that's the first thing that you have to do is turn shit in on time. And it's like there was a plumbing business that I, I love to use as an example where they basically, the whole thing was we show up on time in clean clothes with our shirts tucked in. Because what are the biggest three issues with plumbing? They're late, they're dirty, and their butt crack is hanging out. And so they created this really successful business simply by dealing with those three objections. And as a copywriter, if you just get stuff done on time, that's going to separate you. And then I'd say the biggest issue that people make is they don't set up deals that have exponential outcomes. They focus on getting this certain amount and they don't create win-win scenarios where basically what I say to business owners is, hey, I want to win when you win really. I want to win big when you win really big, right? If you make a hundred grand, I want 10,000 of that. If you make this, you know, and I, you know, if I, if I can add a million dollars, would you pay me a hundred thousand? It's like, well, yes. Okay. So it's basically getting people really excited to write you big ass checks. And that comes down to deal structure and almost nobody sets it up right. And that's the difference. The difference between a rich copywriter and a mediocre, you know, wealth one is not the skill of the copy. It's the quality of the deal structure that they make. Yeah, so let's let's get a little granular on that. What does that look like? How do you start that conversation so that you're able to, you know, have that kind of a deal on the back end? Yeah, so I mean, the first one I did that was really set up like that, the company reached out to me and they said, Hey, we want to pay you twenty grand per sales letter. We'll give you any anything between zero and fifteen percent or sorry, five and fifteen percent increase. We'll give you 15,000, 16 to 25%. Um, we'll give you 30,000, uh, 26 to 35%. We'll give you 45,000 or anything over 36%. We'll give you 60,000. And they said, we want you to, to focus on these two sales letters. And I basically went and rewrote these sections. And I just, I mean, it took me maybe 10 hours total uh, between the two different things. And it, I mean, one of them actually, to be straight up, it took me 25 minutes to write the new lead. Um, and that's running to this day, like four years later. And, you know, they paid me like probably 120,000 from that something. Um, and I was like, wow, I just made more in, from a month of work than I did from my job last year. Uh, and so that's just how I structure stuff. But I find ways to create a win with that company, right? So um, what makes sense to them? And I find that royalties often don't work. Uh, one of my sort of rules for freelancing is everyone wants to get paid monthly, but nobody wants to pay monthly. And so one of the only ways to get royalties to really work is if the accounting department is disconnected from the marketing department. So if the accounting department just writes your checks and the marketing guys don't have to see how much they're paying you every month, like big companies like Agora and stuff, it can work. Uh, and then one of the ways like with stuff that I do now will be more around lists. And I really think focusing on email is 
is better for pretty much everyone. There's a lot more opportunity and there's a lot more opportunity for unique structures. And so like with one client, it'll be okay. Like I've got one now where rewritten their card abandons and basically I get 30%, all right, 15% of all new revenue on top of what they were already earning. So they're at two grand a day. So they get to four grand a day. Then I'm making, you know, 300 bucks a day from doing stuff once. And that's just keeps going. And then 30% of anything new. So basically, if you want to set stuff up, you, you take a percentage of only what's new. So you find them money and you take a percentage of that money that you found. Because if you try and take a percentage of what they've already got or any of their business or anything, it's not going to work. And that's sort of I've had the luxury of being a business owner and a freelancer. And so I know how to think like a business owner because freelancers go, well, I want 5% of your of gross. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, I make we make 15% at the end of the year. I get half of that. I, that means I get seven and a half. My business partner gets seven and a half. And you're telling me I'm going to give you five. And then, like, oh, wait, but I've heard people talk about this before. It's like, yeah, it's bullshit. So it's understanding that business and where they're coming from and finding a way to create a win for them where you get paid to, to win for them. At this point, I think that we should jump in and talk a little bit about this idea of passive income, getting paid for the value that we create instead of just the hours or the time that we put in and using our time more wisely to scale our business. So this is not a new topic for the podcast either. We've definitely talked about this with other uh, guests, but there's some really good stuff there here that I think we want to touch on, Kira. What stood out to you as we were listening to Ian talk about how he structures his agreements? Yeah, well, I love talking about money and um, how to structure contracts with the copywriters on our show. And so it was fun to talk about it with Ian. And, you know, what really stood out to me is just that how many of us copywriters think that we have to wait until we have so much experience or since we you know, reach Ian's level, or we're an A-list copywriter, or we've been at it for a decade in order to structure our deals and have a royalty or get any type of bonus. And I think we just kind of assume that we have to charge a certain way or just charge a project fee or charge for hourly work. And so hearing Ian talk about it is just kind of a really good wake-up call, um, especially the way that he talks about uh, you know, the copywriters who are making the most are just the best ones at structuring the deal. It doesn't always mean that they're better or more talented. They definitely have talent, but there are so many copywriters who are so talented and are not making money, right? They're struggling. So I like the way that he talked through the bonus concept and making it a win-win for his clients um, and even sharing some of the rough numbers to give us an idea of what that looks like with the 25K up front and, you know, some type of bonus structure with percentage increases equaling, you know, whatever it is for him. So I think it's something that we can all do. I want to test it out with a client, you know, a future client and just kind of play around with it and figure out what works, what doesn't work and not wait to do it. 
Yeah, I think it's something that everybody should be thinking about, especially if the copy that we're creating is related to the actual sales transaction. You know, I mentioned, we've talked about this before. Uh, I, I seem to remember that Eric Bakey talked about um, the found money concept, you know, helping find where the, the money is in the business that's maybe untapped, you know, so right. whether that's, you know, um, the people are leaving things in the shopping cart and not not actually buying and what could you do if you, you know, fix that problem? Or, um, you know, maybe there are um, products that were created and, and they just don't sell them anymore. And, you know, what would happen if you re resurrected one of those products? And um, he actually got that idea. Eric got that idea, I think, from Dan Kennedy. And Dan Kennedy has a book called Almost Alchemy that actually walks through what he calls the found money blueprint. And I, I think it's like five or six pages of just ideas of where you can discover money in a business. And I think any copywriter who is thinking, okay, I want to up my game, not just deliver copy, but start to help my clients identify, you know, how can they make more money might want to check that out and, and see that resource because it can help you figure out places in your client's business or even in our own businesses where we're leaving money on the table and we're not, we're not delivering the value that we really could. And then like what Ian's talking about, charge for it. What about passive income? Ian talked a little bit about passive income. What do you feel like you could think about differently or start doing? Yeah. So we've been very upfront with everybody we've ever talked to about passive income and said, you know, there's not really a such, any such thing as passive income. I mean, it still requires work, whether that's, you know, improving your products, whether that's growing your list. And, you know, it came out really strongly in our discussion with Ian that, a lot of this is about list growth or making sure at least that you are giving your list lots of opportunities to respond to the offers that you can make. And so I think, again, that this is uh, even Mike Kim talked about, you know, selling our sawdust uh, on our podcast with him and in his presentation to TCC IRL. Same kind of an idea, right, where we're taking things that we've already done and we're monetizing them to a different audience or, or asking uh, you know, other people to look at it and discover the value there and being able to you know, create additional value in our businesses. So I'm all for it. I think we should do more of it as copywriters. And I like Ian's approach. I think it's, it's really smart. Yeah. So we need to grow the list. That's what I took away from it. If you want more passive income, grow your list. And sometimes we need that reminder frequently. Ian also mentions that he, you know, stays away from calling himself a copywriter because there's oftentimes a negative connotation with that identification around being a copywriter, you know, missed deadlines, maybe lack of professionalism. Uh, and I think that's really interesting, the way that he's positioned himself as a persuasion hitman and not a copywriter. And it's so intentional. So I think thinking about what you call yourself and how you identify yourself as a business owner and a service provider um, and a consultant is really important here. And for some, it really depends on your audience and who you want to serve. Because for some niches and industries, uh, it does help to call yourself a copywriter because the people who want to hire you are aware of the fact that they need copy and they understand what a copywriter is and that's who they're looking for. But in other instances, uh, similar to Ian's, they they've worked with a lot of copywriters before and maybe like they churn through them because they've worked with ones that are less reliable it may make sense to call yourself something else that feels more impactful and aligns with your x factor and what makes you unique and stand out from everyone else in the marketplace yeah i think you're right in that i think 
if you're going to do something like this, you know, choose a different kind of title for you, you need to be very clear on who it is that you're serving. Um, I'm guessing that not very many people go into Google and search for a persuasion hitman. It works for Ian because he's basically built a reputation around that. He has his own list. He can do that. But if I were just starting out and wanted to call myself a persuasion hitman, I might limit the number of clients that are actually going to find me because they're looking for a copywriter or they're looking for a copywriter with a particular specialty or niche. But having said that, there are a lot of copywriters who a year or two in sort of discover they're doing a whole lot more than writing copy or writing content that they're, you know, offering strategy or they're doing branding or, you know, they're consulting, you know, again, like how to find the, the hidden money in a business. And that is such a, a much bigger value and a, and a much bigger deliverable than just, you know, website copy or email copy or a sales page. And, and so they start to think about what are the titles that they can use in order to be seen as somebody who's delivering more value than, you know, a copywriter who's just starting out. So I, I like the idea that's going on here. I think there's a lot right with thinking through what should we call ourselves. It reminds me of our interview with Rob Scrobe too, who talked about the fact that he, writing copy is a part of what he does, but he calls himself like a retention specialist. He's focused on membership retention and he doesn't even call himself a copywriter, even though a lot of what he does is uh, including copy and um, copy is actually the deliverable that he's creating for his retainer clients. But he created his title to speak to his ideal audience and prospect because they're looking for help with retention. That's what they're searching for. That's what they're struggling with. Those are the pain points are around suffering retention. And so they're looking for someone who's a specialist in that space. So I think it just, I guess the takeaway is just to really think about your audience and what would resonate the most with them in your marketplace and also how crowded it is and what other people are calling themselves and how you could distinguish yourself from everyone else. Yeah. Robert's a great example. He's built a million dollar business, uh, basically a million dollar copywriting business, but he does not call himself a copywriter. I think that's a, a, the perfect example. Okay. So let's go back to our interview with Ian and wrap up with a question or two about his YouTube show. Ian, I'd love to ask you about your, your YouTube show, Entrepreneurs in Vehicles Getting Beverages, which I, I watched the one with JP Sears and it was really good. It was really good. You both you. are funny. All right. So we are up close and personal because we're in a tiny, tiny little uh, car that's apparently supposed to be smart. Uh, it's a little smart car. It weighs the same as me. And it is quite literally the worst thing I've ever driven in my life. So I'd love to hear just like, what was the catalyst for the show um, beyond Seinfeld for you? And then what happens behind the scenes to produce a show like this that um, takes, I mean, at least it seems like it takes a lot of work uh, looking at it uh, for other copywriters who want to get on YouTube and maybe create their own show? Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely more involved than any of the other stuff that I've done. Um, and I've only had the five episodes. I haven't done more since I've been here because I didn't have a video guy in LA. But I've got a full, I've got a video guy now. And once the you know, well, once the riots and the coronavirus stuff chills out, I'll start doing the show again. Um, but basically, yeah, I mean, I got the idea from comedians and cars getting coffee right now. Obviously, entrepreneurs and vehicles getting beverages. I wanted to also keep that beverage open to you know margaritas or whatever I want that to be. And so. Um, and I, you know, I think the second episode was the third episode was on a, a bird scooter 
I wanted to keep the vehicles, you know, a wide range of those as well instead of just cars. But uh, it's I actually had people reaching out after the first one I did, and they're like, oh, who produced this? Which company? I was like, his <laughs> name is Morgan. It was my video guy. But it does take him a, a bit of work. But for me, all the work that's required is to show up and, and be entertaining with the person that I'm with. And we actually, what's the hardest part is that we have, like with JP, there's another hour and a half of incredible content yeah. that wasn't put out in that episode. And so we've kind of been trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I put out the rest? Um where it's like, here's the core show that's, you know, 30 to 45 minutes. And then here's all the unabridged, like whole thing. Cause it's such a great, I mean, it was so fun. Um, but I definitely, that's something that definitely takes a bit more. Um, it's a bit more involved, but it's a great way to leverage relationships. And that's something where my goal with that is, you know, say hope, you know, I start doing a lot more of them over the next six months is to use that to, to grow the YouTube channel and to build a following, but also to potentially, you know, sell that to Netflix or, whatever it might be, and then use that to, to sort of level up and, you know, be interviewing the Mark Cubans and Elon Musk's of the world and stuff like that. But also part of it, and this is something that I think is important, is I don't want to ask them the same questions everybody else does. Um, you know, podcasts, and you, know, you guys have asked me some really in-depth and different questions than uh, most people. And, you know, I haven't talked about the Norse gods on a podcast at all. And probably everybody here probably stopped listening. Like, oh my God, this guy's out of his mind. Copywriter <laughs> um, Club exclusive. Uh, Ian, yeah, Ian worships yeah. Thor. Yeah, there you go. I've got my, if you could see in my room, I've got my legit Thor, like 13 pound Thor's hammer on the, uh, right behind me. But essentially stuff like that takes quite a bit more to, to put into it. But what I like to do is just take things that exist and then, that are already proven and then try and put my own spin on it. Uh, what I was going to say is, I, you know, a lot of people have the same stuff they say on podcasts and things. And so you can go and listen to somebody on a different podcasts and learn about it. I want to have a fun conversation that's different and doesn't really have a, a plan and just let things kind of unfold and, and get people to share stuff that they maybe wouldn't normally. Um, and then like, I have a show that I think hopefully we're going to get this going now that I got my video guy here, but I've had this idea for over a year of uh, influences read mean comments and so just getting influences to just read the clips of all the mean shit people say in their, in their comment section. And, you know, again, what is that from? Celebrities read mean tweets. Great proven concept. How can I change it and make it my own? Um, so that's a lot of, you know, with the parody characters, right? It's taking Ty Lopez or what is that? Ly Topez, right? And just creating variations on things that already exist is one of the best ways to create comedy. Yeah, I like a lot of your characters. They're, they're pretty creative and funny. Ian, I know we're almost out of time and we want to respect your time since we've already gone way over. Um, okay, we'll just start wrapping it up, but I know we, we haven't even asked. You can go rapid fire if you want, if you want to try and go through it. Let's I know do it. Okay, let's. I've my call in seven minutes, so okay. you know, I'm happy let's to. Let's do the last this. question. Let's talk about stand up comedy. What business lessons you've learned from your experience with stand up that copywriters listening can apply to their business? The biggest parallel between the two is that when you walk on stage and when you start a sales letter both uh you have to ask the same question which is what is the conversation going on in their head and where are they now so that's the single most important question copy is where are they now what is this conversation that's already happening do they know who i am do they know the pain point what level of awareness are they at um and how can i get their attention and and in stand-up, it's very much about addressing all of the, 
you know, I think this is extremely relevant with everything going on in the world. But the fact is all humans are making subconscious decisions about you the second they see you based on the way you look. That is human nature. And it's not because people are inherently racist or bad people. It's because it's a survival mechanism. We all have prejudices because at, at our core, people who look like us are less likely to kill us. Right. That's on a tribal level. Your tribe probably didn't kill you, so it's safer. And it's the same as we all have it in every minute of every day where you see the clothes someone's wearing. And whether you want to judge them or not, something has occurred. And you are making these split-second decisions. So when I walk on stage, um, I have to I address how I look. because, And I have to have that conversation. Because the conversation in their head, and in my opinion, when, when I go on is, oh, look at this douchey white guy who doesn't look like a comedian, right? And so one of the first things I say is, uh, you know, there's nothing worse you can be in stand-up than an in-shape, reasonably good-looking white guy. And it's, there's nothing funny about healthy white people. And it's, you know, because that's what they're thinking is, who, like, I, you know, I don't look like a, a traditional comedian, which I also use, I used to use as an excuse to not do stand-up. Right. It was like, well, I don't look like a comic, so that's a disadvantage. And the reality is a lot of your biggest disadvantages in your life, if you look at them, can actually become your biggest advantages. Um, and they make you unique and interesting and different. And so instead of going, well, there's no comedians that look like me, I go, well, that's amazing. That means instead of me using that before as shame and guilt to not do it, it's like, well, actually, that means that there's space for me to be the only one. And so, you know, the next end is like, if you know, I wish I was. A chubby guy, right? Chubby guys probably look at me and think, oh, in, you know, you're in shape. I'd like to look like that. And I look at chubby guys and I think, I want that comedy bod, right? You get on stage, you puff out your belly and your man boobs and everybody's like, oh, it's so funny. Like, hey, I just got here from the gym. And you're like, oh, no, you didn't. You're fat. And then if I'm like, hey, I just got here from the gym. You're like, oh, cool. Nice discipline. Take care. Like, cool story. And so, and obviously, you know, people here can't see me, so they don't know if any of that's true. But that's the most important thing is knowing objections in advance. That's the difference between a B-level copywriter and A-level copywriters. They know, they are able to uncover and address objections before or as they arise. So that's why when you write stuff, you have to put in that piece of like, this part isn't meant to sound arrogant, it's to demonstrate a point. Because if you don't say that sentence, the rest of the sales letter, you just sound like a douchebag. And you've got to address those objections before or as they arise. So that's kind of the, the biggest thing is in comedy, it's the same thing is addressing those thoughts that people are having. Because if you can't win them over right away too, and they just dislike you, that's not a great place. This whole discussion has been great, Ian. And like we said, we want to respect your time. And so I just want to thank you for sharing. We talked about a lot of stuff we don't usually talk about either on a podcast, which is great. Gives us something else to talk about that's new. So thanks so much for showing up. What I love about what Ian has done with YouTube is that he's thinking really big. And we often talk about creating your own media empire and media channel as a business owner, as a copywriter, when copy is our specialty. Uh, and sometimes that means creating your own podcast, or it means um, showing up in social media consistently. And that's your media channel where your people can hear from you and find you. And for Ian, 
he didn't just create a YouTube channel, but he actually created a highly produced show that feels on par with other um, shows that are even on Netflix. And so uh, clearly, like if you've seen his show, it takes a lot of time. You can tell just from watching it that this isn't something that he just easily and quickly produced. And because of that, uh, he stands out in the marketplace. And also what I like about that concept is he's willing to do what 95% of the other consultants in the space aren't willing to do, which is put in the extra time for a highly produced production. And I think that message can translate into other areas, even if you're not interested in YouTube and creating a show. It's just thinking about what you could do that most other people and your competition will not do because it's too hard or it takes too much time or there's not an immediate return or it is too much of an investment or it's just a painful process. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be with YouTube. For us, you could even say it was updating this podcast and creating this new format, which Rob, you can speak to. Like, It's not easy. You do a lot of extra work for it, but we're willing to do it because it helps us, hopefully, it helps us stand out and take the show to the next level. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I sort of looked at what's happened in podcasting over the last few years after we launched our show. Uh, we certainly weren't the first copywriter podcast, but I think we had a little bit of a unique take, you know, when we started out. But uh, as time has gone on, I feel like there are others that have joined in and done something very similar to what we've done. Uh, you know, I, I've seen a lot of our guests obviously want to be on other copywriting podcasts as well. And so, you know, you can hear them elsewhere. And so as we started to rethink this show and, you know, add these extra comments in there, it's one of those things that takes a whole lot more time. It's, it's probably doubled the amount of time that it takes to actually produce the podcast, but hopefully it's different enough and maybe it adds value. Uh, you know, if it's not adding value, please, you know, email us, let us know, but, um, we want to put in that extra time to make this podcast a little bit different. So it stands out from other shows that are out there and you're right. Like Ian's production on his, uh, on his YouTube show is amazing and it really does stand out. And I, I think this can come to anything, you know, if you're con uh, creating content, say, uh, you know, skyscraper type content on a blog, you know, really going the extra mile, you know, adding all of the extra details that other people are not going to do. Certainly, you know, those people who are doing kind of that cheap SEO link building stuff are not going to do like going the extra mile takes you to another level and uh, it makes you stand out in so many ways. And the vast majority of people just aren't going to go uh, that extra distance. And so uh, thinking about how you can do that in your own business uh, as a copywriter, I think is a really important skill to develop and then to go and execute on. Yeah. And we talk often about all the hats you wear as a copywriter and that you're wearing the entrepreneur hat and the marketer hat and the project manager hat, keeping the business running. But you're also uh, wearing this media hat. And I don't think we talk about that enough, that you're building whether it's a small one or a big one, you're building some sort of media company too. And so learning and uh, watching people like Ian who are building their own media and kind of jumping all deeply into that and going all out is worthwhile to think about what, what could you do to continue to build and grow your own media company inside your business that can be used strategically to attract more clients or to create that passive income or to create new services and products. Yep, I agree. 
So, you know, whether it's a media company or whether it's just doing what you do and, you know, taking it up to 11 or whatever the extra wow factor is that, that you're adding, it's worth thinking about and then doing. So if you want to connect with Ian, check out the opt-in page at standupconversions.com. If you're interested in getting a free copy of Ian's book, go to persuasionhitman.com. The book is free. You just have to pay for shipping. And that's the end of another show. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter songwriter David Muntner. You can learn more about our programs like the Copywriter Underground or the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind group for copywriters who are building six-figure businesses by visiting thecopywriterclub.com. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole damn episode.